Thanks for listening to American Student Radio. I'm Sheila Raghavendran. And I'm Emily Miles. Today we're broadcasting from 99.1 WIUX LP Bloomington. And everything we're talking about is stuff we're really not supposed to talk about. The vibe in the studio today is taboo topics ranging from death to bathing to first date no-nos. It's going to be a ride. From Bloom... From... Uh, again, live? live? What is it? <clears throat> Oh, ready? Should I do it again? From Indiana University in Bloomington. From Indiana University in Bloomington. This is... This is... This is American Student Radio. Real chill. Real chill. Aliens. Conspiracy. Journalism. And lesbians. Some taboos just depend on the situation. Like, when you're kissing someone, it's an especially poor taste to throw up. To find out about real-life first-date taboos, our producer, Sophia Salaby, hit the streets. should not talk about your past relationships. Oh, yeah, true. Don't talk about your exes. Avoid yeah, avoid never. the statement my ex used to. Yeah, yeah. In general, I think that's good. Don't order spaghetti. Um, Wait, why not spaghetti? Because that's the worst first date food. You're gonna be slurping your whole date, and it's so not cute. Okay. No KOK, no jungle. No jungle. Go never, to Soma. Never go to, for the first date. Go to Starbucks. Ever. Probably like anything sad, like like the the Holocaust Museum, probably. But I do a radio show, and my friend and I did uh, first dates where you should take someone for a first date. And his idea was first to a liquor store, then to a public park, then to a free outdoor concert, then some hot dogs, and then late night movie. That's the perfect first date? It's his perfect first date. I think that's the worst first date you could possibly ever uh, make up. To a restaurant that serves exclusively ribs. <laughs> or like chicken wings. <laughs> <laughs> like the stuff that is like the worst to eat. Yeah, I wouldn't take them to a super expensive restaurant for the first time because if I don't have a shorty about next time, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. Do not pick your boogers and eat them. Have you seen that happen? Yes. And if you are dating a person of color, please don't say you are pretty for, you know, that kind of person. Like, I've been on so many dates and people have been like, oh my God, you're so pretty for a black guy. And I'm just like, okay. So, yeah, don't do that. Actually, the first time I went out with my current boyfriend, he was so nervous after we kissed, he threw up. I had one. This girl wanted me to piggyback her from IMU all the way around this to Wells. Why? I don't know. It was during finals and we were taking a break. (laughs) Uh, He took me out to fast food, brought me back to his parents' house, and had me play Super Smash Brothers with him until his friends got there and then had me watch cartoons while they played Super Smash Bros. And his parents slept upstairs. <laughs> Music provided by David Setsday under a Creative Commons license. For American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Sophia Salaby.
Some taboos are so deeply rooted in a culture that people go out of their way to stick to them. Growing up as a first-generation Indian American, I quickly picked up on the do's and don'ts in India. In the next piece, I explore the cultural taboos passed on over generations. The first time I really became aware of cultural taboos in India was when I was nine and I was visiting my grandmother's house. I remember she had a tall black gate in front of a stone path that led up to her house. She had a garden in the back and some trees and plants up front. Outside of the gate was the road where people or cows or really anything would walk by. I was wearing a skirt. Well, okay, that's a lie. I was wearing a skirt, but it was 2006 and it was okay. And I was crouched down playing in her front yard. A couple of boys walked by, peered in through the gate at me, and laughed, and I immediately knew why. My skort, my beloved skort that was two inches above my knee, which in America would be fine, in India was too short, and at nine years old, I was too old to get away with it. And those boys had called me out, but, but what was worse was that they knew that I wasn't from there, that I didn't belong, because I had broken this cultural rule. So when we decided to do this show, I thought a lot about that moment and about other taboos I had learned over the years. I went to my long-standing information source for some more deets. Hello? Hi, Mom. Hi, Sheila. How's it going? Good, good, good. Well, yeah, I was wondering if we could talk about taboo culture in India. Yeah. Seeing as you grew up there, I figured you would have some stories. And um, she did. I'm the only lefty in my family. They would say, no, 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 you have to use your right hand. By they, she means her parents, my grandparents, who I call Adja and Adji. Adji lives with my parents right now, so I was able to talk to her about it too. We're speaking in a language called Kannada, so I'll translate. Why did you tell mom she shouldn't write with her left hand? For us, in India, if you do things with your left hand, it isn't good. You shouldn't give with your left hand. You shouldn't take something or accept something with your left hand. That doesn't go well. But why? It's written in our books, she said. She kept repeating this word, Shoba. Shoba Allah, which means that there wouldn't be any Shoba if you did something with your left hand. But I didn't know what Shoba meant. So I asked my mom, and she said there wasn't a good English translation, but the closest she could think of was gracefulness meaning that doing something like writing with your left hand meant that you were doing it without grace. Do you think that um, switching to your right hand made it less enjoyable to write? Yeah, I'm not a writer, so it's, I was allowed to use my left hand when I be a writer. I don't know. I, it's a hard to tell. So, who knows? Yeah, maybe... Maybe I, uh, like I said, I don't, don't remember, so I don't know. Well, it could be, I don't know. For American Student Radio in Bloomington, 
I'm Sheila Raghavendran. Music provided by MMFFF under a Creative Commons license. In honor of National Coming Out Day, October 11th, our producer Olivia Fahey explored how coming out of the closet can be very taboo or not. Here, she shares the coming out stories of four queer women, including herself. Mom just laughed and she was like, guys, that's gay. And I was like, mom, I'm gay. And that was pretty much the whole story of how I came out to my mom. Coming out of the closet is nerve-wracking. In a heteronormative society, it's easy to feel very vulnerable in expressing your sexuality. Sometimes we make it a bigger deal than it needs to be. I, for example, wrote my parents a dramatic note and left it in the kitchen for them to read after I went to bed one night. Unfortunately, I don't have the note anymore, but if I did, it would read something like this. Dear Mom and Dad, I'm gay, whether you like it or not. I hope you still love me. P.S. I have a big, scary girlfriend. That was my freshman year of high school. Despite the ending sounding like somewhat of a threat, my parents were completely accepting. My dad took me by the arms and said, Honey, I've always known. Whatever that means. However, not everyone has such a positive experience in coming out. I'll start with me coming out to my mother. And our relationship has never really been that great. That's Samantha Sims speaking. She too came out her freshman year of high school. After being physically and emotionally abused by her mother for years, coming out only added to the emotional stress she was under. I had known I was gay for a couple years now, but I just sort of kept it to myself because it was a very small town, and I just, I was also like 13 and like just did not care. Like I had bigger, more important things like gummy bears and school grades to think about. Also, there were no girls who would really like give me the time of day, even as a friend, so, because I was a huge nerd. But there was that, and then my freshman year, it got to the point where I was just so depressed and like so anxiety ridden that I just sort of got to the point where I gave up and I started getting into drugs a little bit and that's when I just in like this huge knockdown drag out fight where like I actually started hitting back with my mother uh, I just screamed at her I'm a lesbian and then she pushed me down the stairs and I decided I don't care anymore. Like, I thought I didn't care before, but no, this is real. I do not care. I'm a lesbian. I'm going to be 100% full out to everyone in the town. And I don't care how many bricks get thrown at me from the back of trucks while people scream dyke at me. I'm out. I don't care. I want to die anyway. You can threaten me with death all you want. I don't care. Fortunately, Samantha has a very loving relationship with her dad. Her experience coming out to him was much more positive. With my dad, it's always been great. He was a stay-at-home dad when I was little, so he's basically like all I've ever known for a parent that was actually good and responsible. He was always very supportive. The first thing that he said when I just calmly told him, like at breakfast one morning, when I said, Dad, I think I like girls. It was also freshman year when I said that after the fight with my mother, after I went home for the week with him. And 
He just said, okay, do you still want breakfast this morning? Or do you want to go grab something at the cafe? And I was just like, I'll have breakfast. And it was nice. And that was really good. And now whenever we go see movies, he'll like say, oh, is she pretty? Which actresses do you like? We'll go see that movie. So he's always really nice. And he let me cut my hair into a really short hairstyle that I like, even though he loved. It was always his favorite thing to like braid my hair and do it up in a ponytail and a bun when I was little. But he said he'd give that up if it made me happy. Because that's all he really wanted. Sometimes coming out can be quite amusing. Here we hear from Claire Dwinger. I was at my grandma's house with her and we were watching The Ellen Show. And at one point, I, my grandma said something along the lines of, I would marry Ellen. And I agreed immediately. And my mom just laughed and she was like, guys, that's gay. And I was like, mom, I'm gay. And that was pretty much the whole story of how I came out to my mom. And then about two years later, because I came out as gay in freshman year and then junior year, I realized I was ace and uh, it was sort of weird at first because I wasn't sure if it was a thing and then one of my other friends who was also asexual talked to me about it and she's like yeah it's a thing so I thought that applied to me better so another day we weren't watching Ellen this time we were probably watching something on Food Network we were just hanging out and I kind of turned to her and I'm like mom I think I'm asexual and she just kind of looked at me for a second. And she's like, what does that mean? And, it's, and I said, I think I don't want to have sex, like, ever. And she just kind of paused for a second. And the first thing out of her lips was, does this mean I'm not having grandchildren? But she meant it as a joke, and she took it really well. And again, my dad just did not care. So it all went really well, and I was, I'm happy to say that both of my coming out stories are happy ones. Sometimes... It can take our loved ones a while to come around to the idea of it. Here is Darian Marquez. It took me a while to tell my mom because uh, considering the fact that I'm Hispanic, it's much harder to come out to uh, people of that type of culture because we have such a stereotypical role for females and males. And my family, being full of males, don't really wrap around the idea of being gay but I uh, my godbrother he had come out a couple years earlier so I wasn't totally afraid the first time I told my mom was wasn't until my junior year of high school when I was completely sure I was bisexual and um, we were in the car and we were on our way home and I was like mom I'm gonna tell you something but I don't want you to take it in a bad way and I was like I like girls too. And she was very denying at first. She was telling me that it was just a face and that it would just go past me and then I shouldn't tell anybody or say anything to anybody else because I could probably change my mind. My senior year of high school, it was the same car ride back home and I, we were discussing just random sexual stuff because my mom and I have that type of bond and I like looked at her seriously and I was like mom I'm I'm like dead serious here like I like girls I've been with girls 
and like it's not gonna change my perspective like I I know for a fact that I am bisexual and I think that's when she finally understood that I was who I was and I mean like I don't go around telling everybody I mean you know hi I'm bisexual but like I know it's part of me and like my mom knows it's part of me in the end being true to yourself in whatever form that takes is worth it. I just want to tell anybody who's struggling with thoughts of coming out that it's scary, but once you do it, it feels so good. So just think about it, make a plan, and follow through, because you can do it. From American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Olivia Fahey. Thank you to Kevin Crowder for the music in this story. Sometimes, taboos aren't rooted in culture or dictated by the people around us. They're deeply personal. In research for this next piece, I discovered three key reasons for personal taboos. Insecurity, conflict avoidance, and burden-bearing. Burden-sparing. But those mean nothing outside of real experiences shared by three IU students. That's from a vine of a distraught child, and he's talking to the person recording him. But just as easily, he could be the voice in each of our heads. Cultural taboos aside, we also abide by personal taboos. Um, And it puts me in a lot of uncomfortable situations because it comes up in a lot of casual conversations and it makes me so uncomfortable, like beyond not liking a topic of a conversation. Like I generally generate ill feelings towards the person when they talk about it. That ineffable it is hard drugs. I guess at least... In my circles, we don't talk about the way drugs like ruins lives. It's such a fun pastime for the people that surround me. And I'm surrounded by amazing people, smart, kind, honest people. So I think we can understand issues, but applying them to our own lives is difficult. And so I think people understand that people get addicted to drugs, but it's so easy to be like, well, it's not going to happen to me. But for her, it's bigger. It's not a joke. It's the thing that's irreparably damaged her family. This is something I don't talk about with a lot of people. Um, when I was younger, my older sister, she would she would pick me up from places and like shoot up in front of me and would like take me to drug dealers' houses or like make me wait in a car in the dark alone. Not that she doesn't love me, it just it takes over who you are. So I have these just like vivid memories of spending like at least an hour at a time in those kinds of situations and being in a car with someone who's literally doing cocaine it's just not cute to me and it's just not funny it's not one of those things like oh we're young we're millennials like we can't change a light bulb it's a matter of life and death three of my siblings um have each had serious serious problems with drug addiction and it makes me so cautious and honestly way more judgmental than i want to be because like, I've seen the impact it has on a family. I've, in one case, I actually lost my brother because of reasons related to drugs. She's not the only one whose siblings play a role in a personal taboo. So the thing I don't talk about is my sister. And she left home when I was about nine because she's eight and a half years older than me. And when I was nine, she went off to boarding school. And right after that, she went off to college. And she went to Princeton. I live in the Midwest, so she was very far away. Immediately after graduation, she moved to Europe, back to our 
where she was born in England. And then after that, she moved to Barcelona. So she's been having all of these great adventures across the world, which are really exciting. But I see her very infrequently in that time, and we have very, very little contact, um, in part because she very, very rarely reaches out to my family to talk to us or to be updated on what's going on. I don't talk about her because I don't feel as if she wants to be a part of my life. And I feel as if if she's trying to deliberately exclude herself from my life, that I shouldn't include her within my own. And she's not the only one whose personal taboo revolves around a person who isn't around much. Uh, my roommate tends never be around but because we're guys and because maybe it's not even because we're guys maybe it's just some false sense of we've set up a friendship in a way that it doesn't have to be that way that I don't tell him that he's not around enough and I think that you know he he deserves to have his like own life but I'm pretty lonely at home all the time Uh, and usually I think about it and I play through the whole conversation in my head and then when I actually get up to speak with him He comes home, and I'm like, oh, he's already home, so there's no reason to, like, bring it up, because now we're having a good time. And then sometimes it'll come up, but it's usually, like, a one-word, one-line. He's like, oh, yeah, I know, I'll be around more, but not really. He doesn't ever turn up. For him, the taboo is a matter of insecurity and conflict avoidance. And so we're just, we're we're best friends, so it it just doesn't seem like the kind of thing that you, that I should bring up with him, because it's, you know, that kind of friendship. I think um, one of it's, like, an insecurity that, if I bring it up too much, that he's already chosen other people as a priority over me, and that if I bring it up, then he'll completely cut off contact. Uh, And the other is kind of wanting to avoid conflict, but kind of for the same reason. For others, the silence involves sparing family and friends from a perceived burden. Both burden and conflict. In two different ways. I don't want to create a conflict with her by telling her that I feel as if she's not a part of my life. I don't want to create a burden for my family because my parents already struggle with her being gone and I don't want to create a burden on my friends who don't fully understand the situation. And for many, it's a mixture of insecurity, conflict, and burden. For sure, that that all matches up. And specifically with insecurity, that's like two parts to that in the situation. Like on the one hand, there's this huge insecurity about not fitting in and not doing what everyone else is doing, which is more shallow, I would say. Normal, obviously, but shallow. And then the other part of me, like, I have this vision, like, if I were to try one of these coke or heroin, for instance, if I were to try it once, like, it wouldn't just be once. Thanks to Lobo Loco for the music in this piece. For American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Emily Miles. Thanks for listening to American Student Radio. We broadcast every Sunday at noon on WIUX 99.1. This week, we asked our producers what they don't talk about at the dinner table. So at like big family dinners, when my whole family, like extended family is together, we don't talk about my grandma's cooking because she's not a very good cook, but she insists on making huge meals every like holiday or chance we get together. So we just don't like talk about it, even though we all don't like it. Oh, my parents divorce. <laughs> That's, no, that would not come up at the dinner table. <laughs> my cousin is a woman. She's dating a woman. 
and my grandfather doesn't understand that uh so he just he's like oh so you're still living with your roommate and uh nobody says anything it's just like if i was like uh-huh now back to the show Taboos can be cultural, societal, personal, but can also be derived from fear. Death, with its inevitability, may be the ultimate fear and therefore the ultimate taboo. In the next piece, producer Noni Ford delves into the world of death. I decided to take a death studies course at Collins. Um, It proved to be one of my favorite courses um, so far in my college career, and one of the best things about this class um, was like the really amazing class discussions that we had almost every single class meeting. But also we had basically just an exceptional instructor named Leslie Train, who not only celebrated our curiosity about death, but also welcomed any questions we had along the way. I got to sit down with her a year since I left the class to talk more about the impact of the class and also talk a little bit about some of her personal views about teaching this sort of subject matter um, on a college campus. So, hello, Leslie. May I call you Leslie? Yes, you may. Please do. (laughs) First off, I would like to know, um, what made you want to teach uh, this course, Death Studies? Um, I've been thinking about this question since you sent it to me, and I still don't have a super clear answer. So, um, I've always been interested in kind of what we don't talk about, or these taboos. So, in undergrad... I think I mentioned to you once I got a gender and women's studies degree along with an anthropology degree and I focused on queer studies and queer politics um, because I grew up in a really small town where no one talked about being queer and you know we definitely didn't talk politics that much and like the mixture of two was totally out of control so I think I was just interested in that because we didn't talk about it and I think I fell into death very much the same way Um, my parents didn't hide it from me like I went to funerals and things like that but it still wasn't you know a conversation we had very much so I don't know I just like talking about things we don't talk about and so yeah I wanted to force people to sit in a room with me twice a week and talk about (laughs) these (laughs) topics with me and I'm also very afraid of dying still Um, so I'm I guess it was kind of a self-invented therapy to make me talk about it. Well, like, I, I wanted to mention, actually, um, I'm actually really scared of dying, too. Oh, my God, it's going to be <laughs> the worst, Noni. <laughs> uh, uh, so nightmares, fun. nightmares. Oh um, God, yes. Like, that's actually also why I took the course. Oh, um, I was really scared of dying, and I had, yeah. like, a lot of um, really bad dreams. And, like, a lot of them were about dying, actually, mm-hmm. um, and, like, not leaving anything behind and different things like that. Um, and so when I saw that this class was offered, um, well, weirdly, the person that was helping me make my schedule, like, an advisor, was like, well, you don't have to take this course. You could take this other course. And I was like, I actually want to take <laughs> Who is that person? <laughs> I actually want to take this course. And she was like, oh, okay. Weirdo. But, like, she also gave me a weird thing, and I was like, is that weird to, like, one? I mean, yeah. it's on a solo um, <laughs> not to brag, but to brag, it was the Collins course that filled up fastest. So I thought that was really interesting yeah. that because I was worried that there would be so many people who would not want to talk about it that it wouldn't fill up. So I was actually kind of pumped that, yep, yeah. like you're saying, people actually wanted to talk about this topic. Yeah, absolutely. 
and also kind of weirdly going around with that whole like um knowing about our fear of death i actually weirdly like when i first came in i was really scared of you yeah. because i thought that you weren't <laughs> i thought that you weren't scared of death and i thought that that was like a really like i don't know i feel like people who aren't scared of death they're like somehow have like some sort of weird superpower where they like see everything that's gonna happen and they're like okay with everything and they're like but they're just like at peace with everything mm-hmm. and i'm definitely not that yeah. and then like when you were like it's still scary to me and i was like oh yeah. my god and, like, like i've gotten better though like oh. i used to have uh, anxiety attacks about it and i would annoyingly call whoever i was dating at the time and be like oh my god death is coming <laughs> and like, stop it's like 1 a.m go away um but I think taking so many courses about it and now teaching one has helped. Another thing I wanted to ask you yeah. was, um, was there anything about deaf that surprised you um, even while teaching the course or something that you found that you were like, mm-hmm. oh, I didn't know about that, and you actually were surprised by just the information that you were finding in your research for the course? Well, there was a lot of stuff that you all brought up in your final projects that I didn't know about. Like, like yours, I had never seen that show, and I didn't really know much about media analysis and things like that um so to have you guys do your own research was just interesting for me uh, much better than reading papers off a prompt I gave you or something like that um another thing I was really intrigued to find and I actually haven't this is from a media outlet so I haven't looked it up to see if it's 100% accurate or not um is that Caitlin Dowdy that order of the good death woman that I like push on you guys so hard <laughs> um, she yeah I think she has a really interesting blend of kind of soft feminism and um yeah death studies but she was talking about how a lot of the kind of new movements in death studies so you know things like the green movement and you know at home uh, care for bodies things like that are led by women um and so that, to me, is super curious. Um, like, why why women would be getting into this kind of male-dominated field and doing it in such uh, new ways. Um, um, so my last question yeah. for this is, do you still feel like it's tabooed when you talk about death and mixed company, or do you feel more okay talking about it? Because people do ask you about it, I guess, because you kind of told me about that earlier. Yeah. Um, um, do you just feel more comfortable talking, or just even generally bringing it up in conversation I feel pretty comfortable bringing it up and it's interesting because I feel like when I bring it up of course there's two responses some people just think it's weird and don't really want to talk about it and they're kind of like oh that's a weird thing to teach a class on cool but I feel like that's such a small minority I feel like most people are like oh my gosh and like it's kind of just like (laughs) spilling out of them to talk about it and yeah that's been really intriguing because to me it just kind of signifies oh wow you don't get to talk about this very often and it's just kind of like you want to tell me about your grandparents death and what you want done with your body and like what do I think about cannibalism and it's just like Like what I just did during this interview (laughs) no totally but I mean I do it too because it's something that you a valve like opens yeah yeah talk about it it's like yeah i I, yeah i mean it's something i think whether people acknowledge it or not that we're all interested in because it's going to happen to us it's going to happen to everyone we love and we don't know what's going to happen so it's you know i mean there's not a ton of mysteries left in the world there there is that's me not understanding science well enough but it's 
you know, I think one of the biggest things where people are just like, what is going on? And yeah, I think it's healthy to talk about. Um, so I actually really love bringing it up in company. I, the more I talk about it, the better, the more I feel comfortable with it. And I hope someday I'll be one of those weird people who are fine like, with it. and at peace. <laughs> yeah. I think I'm afraid because to me, in my head, death is like before you were born. Like, there's no, there's just, you know, nothing. Like, you can't even conceptualize how much nothing that is. Yeah. And just, I don't know, life is so much fun. It's so miserable at times, but it's so fun. Yeah, yeah I can't imagine, like you're saying, just that static nothingness. Yeah. This is ending on a crazy depressing note. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to say, I don't know if I wanted to end this right here, but it's a good ending, but at the same time, um, I mean, fine Uh, i mean it's it's whatever it's gonna happen is gonna happen and all we can do is try to best prepare for it i guess and also on also a positive note i think harry potter is how a lot of people um learn about or possibly also experience or see experiences of death Mm -hmm. um i know for me it was definitely one of the first because when sirius black that i thought that i'd never be the same ever again Uh, I don't know if it's a spoiler. I feel like yeah, it's like written across my heart. Yeah. I'm just like, uh, like I can't even today. Dude, I cried. I think when Dumbledore died. Oh, don't even start like, with Dumbledore. Dude, when Dobby Fred? died, I oh was gone. I was like, I literally oh shut the book, God. put it away from me, and I was like, well, I guess I'm never gonna finish oh that book then. Bye. God. I just so I just reread the whole series. Oh. So when Gosh, I finished my master's exams, I was like, I'm doing this, and I forgot Dobby died. <laughs> And then they were no. in, they were in the Malfoy house, and I was like, "Oh my god, this is happening!" Oh, Dobby. Um, <laughs> that's again a sad note. Wait a second, let's bring it back. But the Harry Potter is how a lot of people <laughs> come to know death or um, yeah. see death or just have experiences of it and stuff like that. But I think one really great thing that Harry Potter teaches you, especially in the end, is um, that death is a thing that definitely happens and I mean even though these people do live in portraits and still can talk to them it's not the same as when they were actually there and they do have funerals and stuff like that I think that's actually one of the first funerals that I've ever actually read was in Harry Potter um, when Dumbledore dies actually (laughs) I think that's the the first one I ever read as a kid Um, and I think it actually teaches you a lot though because I think even though the characters aren't always like oh man Dumbledore said "Ah, Mm -hmm. too bad you guys next adventure like it definitely like you know takes them back a step I think it's a really important scene because it even though he died in a way that obviously people didn't want to die and stuff like that and it was very upsetting and stuff like that I think in a way because of how they dealt with it it made them grow up a lot Yeah. but it also made them aware of and gave them incentive to live more yeah. because of it and I think it actually like in the end really taught them a valuable lesson right yeah I think death can give you a lot of knowledge and definitely appreciation of people in maybe a way you haven't before. Yeah, it's like the one nice thing, I guess. <laughs> well, with that one nice thing, we're going to oh, yeah, end this. So, <laughs> thank you, Leslie. Of course, thank you so much. Yeah. Anytime you want to talk about death, just let me know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, bye. <laughs> For American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Noni. Scars, whether they be physical or otherwise, can have an effect on a person. 
And when that scar is visible, some people feel the need to cover it up to be accepted by the ones around them. Producer Casey Ross spoke with a girl who did the opposite and embraced her scar, even when people told her not to. So that morning I woke up and I was really excited because I got to miss school. But then I remembered like they are going to literally be cutting into my body and sewing me back up. Emma Anderson has a scar. Okay, so my scar is below my left collarbone, and I got it in the, I think I was in the eighth grade. Yeah, it's about like two inches long by like a quarter of an inch wide, so it's pretty large. Emma's had a cyst on her chest ever since she could remember. It was the size of a pea. Oh god, I have, I had it, I don't even know the first time I realized that I had it. I just grew up always having this, like, little pea-sized lump on my chest that, like, was just there. It's always been there. Emma's pea-sized lump was a part of her, but when she was in the eighth grade, she remembers it changing. Pretty much my whole life, it was totally fine, and then in middle school, it started, like, getting inflamed. It was super gross and it would, so it was normally like the size of a pea, but it would swell up to like the size of like a golf ball, sometimes bigger. So it was just like extremely painful. After speaking with her doctor and her family, Emma decided to remove the cyst. On the day of the surgery, Emma woke up at first feeling happy. Woke up and I was really excited because I got to miss school. But then the dread of the procedure sat with her. I was so nervous. (laughs) I knew that they had to put shots in it which sucked because it was inflamed at the time, so it was, like, extra sensitive, and that was, like, the worst part ever. Emma kind of understood that she'd be receiving a large scar from the procedure, but she knew that it was necessary for her health. I remember when I first got it, I thought, like, oh my god, one day I'm gonna go to prom, and people are gonna see it, and then, like, one day I'll be married, and I'm gonna have this scar on my chest, and, like, people will see that, and that I was, like, super nervous about. Even with these fears of what people would think of her, Emma decided to go through with the surgery. She remembers it like it was yesterday. We got there, and I was nervous. My mom was, like, excited to watch. Um, <laughs> and then they brought me into the chair, and there was this woman nurse that was, like, kind of, like, talking me through it. And she's like, oh, sweetie, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. But I was still freaked out. I remember I had on flip-flops, and as soon as he started, like, putting the numbing like in and around the area i remember my feet i was like flopping my flip-flops like really fast to try to distract myself and i just remember it being the worst pain i've ever felt in my life and then they went through the surgery and i was like freaking out the whole time because i could like feel the pressure but i couldn't feel the pain so it was like but then um Afterwards, they bandaged me up and they put, like, gauze and stuff over me. Emma was in a recovery period for about three to four weeks. I think we all understand that middle school is a pretty tough time. Emma could have cowered and hid her scar, but she did exactly the opposite. And I remember I was excused from gym for the rest of the school year, which was super awesome because gym is awful when you're in middle school. (laughs) Um, So that was super exciting, but I remember... um, I had to wear band-aids for, like, I had to wear a big gauze pad over my chest for a really long time, and then I had to, um, like, keep changing that, and I remember going to the store, and I would buy, like, lots of different types of band-aids, um, like, I kept buying Transformers band-aids, and I'd put it all over the gauze pad, like, I thought it was so cool, but looking back, I was such a weirdo. Emma graduated from middle school and went on to high school. 
She was merging with many other middle schools in her township at this new high school, and she said that's when she was afraid that people would make fun of her. So the way that my schools worked was, like, once you went to high school, you joined with other schools. So everybody that went to my middle school, like, knew, like, why I had this scar on my chest um, and, like, kind of knew, like, why it was there. Um, But then in high school, I had several like guys make comments to me like oh you have a huge hickey on your chest and stuff like that and I would get so embarrassed because I was like I've never even kissed a boy like do people really think like I have this big hickey on my chest um so that was the only time that I got teased for it and like people still sometimes say things but it's not often scars are pretty taboo in today's society People get tattoos, buy miracle creams, have surgeries, and do many other at-home remedies to cover up their scars. But Emma decided to live with it. As I, like, got more comfortable with it, um, and, like, I got creative making up stories about why it was there, like, I felt more confident about it, and, um, like, I don't really care anymore. It's there. If people want to look at it, they can, but it's not... I mean, it's part of me now, so I'm fine with it. (laughs) With American Student Radio, I'm Casey Ross. There are some things in society that are considered so taboo that the government makes laws against them. But is all illegal activity really considered taboo? Our producers Eli Cantrell and Hayden Sims explored this possibility firsthand. The law. The highest measure of a civilized society. But there are some pretty crazy laws out there. For example, in Washington, a motorist with criminal intentions must stop at the city limits and telephone the chief of police as he is entering the town. In Waynesboro, Virginia, it's against the law for a woman to drive a car on Main Street unless her husband is walking in front of the car waving a red flag. And in North Carolina, it's against the law to sing off-key. Now, a lot of these laws are just sort of these archaic laws that were made, you know, at the turn of the century or even before then that don't really apply today, but are still technically law, you know, written into the statutes of these different states or cities. And they, for one reason or another, have just never been taken out. And there are actually a few of these laws around here, and Hayden and I decided to test them out. Since we both live near the Indiana-Ohio state border, Eli and I decided to take a vacation this past fall break and break some laws in Ohio. One of the first laws that we decided to break was the fact that in the state of Ohio, you cannot catch a fish with your bare hands. We decided to give this a test along a creek bed at Houston Woods in Oxford, Ohio. Can we get closer to the water over here? I think that's the size that we took the picture of. We might be able to Okay, let's, let's try to describe the setting here. Yeah. So, it's early October, and it's the beginning of fall. The leaves are just beginning to change. They're lined along this creek bed that, for the most part, is not very deep. That's right. The water level was pretty low, but... But it was fortunate because then we were actually able to get out into the middle where there maybe were possibly fish. Okay, so we're currently, um, yeah, we're like hopscotching across some rocks along the creek bed uh, in search 
for of some fish to catch with our bare hands. So eventually we made our way down the creek bed. Uh, there was a slight curve going deeper and deeper into the forest, and we finally reached a portion of the creek that at least seemed like a potential habitat for fish. I think this is good here. We can stop here. How did you get over there? Oh, did you step on this one over here? Yeah, step on that one and that one. Oh boy. I don't know, do you see any fish? Um, you know, I don't. But that doesn't mean they're not there. That's true. Let Very true. my river monster skills and just see what I can do here. Yeah, stick your hands in there. See if you can just pull a fish out of it. Maybe we'll, if we're lucky, you'll just reach your hands in and then pull a fish out. Okay, let's see what, let's see what I can do. Did you, get, did you get anything? No. What is that? I didn't. So we did get to the point where we were scouring the water um, for really any sort of living organism that we could catch with our bare hands, but we weren't having much luck, were we? Right. No, we weren't. We, we would have taken just about anything. A minnow, a tadpole, a swordfish. And I do want to also uh, make it clear that we had no intention of harming any sort of wildlife. Uh, we completely planned on gently, if by an off chance we were to catch something, gently grab it and then re- immediately release it back into the waters. Let's see if we can catch. Let's see if we can catch. Something. Yeah, we'll just. We need to. We can't leave it until we catch one fish. I mean, come on. <laughs> or one, one sort of living, at least some living organism in the water. Okay, here we go. Let's see if I can do this. I caught it! Oh, nope. nope. That's a rock. That's What's a rock. that right there? That black thing. I thought it was moving earlier. Yeah. Is that a fish? That thing? Yeah. No. no. That's trash. I have yet to see any living, like a bug or a spider or anything. What was that? Dang it! Oh, right there! Where'd it go? It looked like a minnow or a tadpole or something. Oh, there's one that just went under that rock over there. Under that rock? Yeah. That one? Yes, that big one. Oh, I see some more. They just went under that rock again. To your right. To your left, I mean. Sorry. I think they know we're here. We're not the first podcasters to come to come through here. <laughs> to no surprise, we did not have any luck catching fish with our bare hands. No, so we so we decided instead to move on to another obscure Ohio law, and that is that it's illegal to go whaling on Sundays. And so, we tried just that. Okay, so we have a makeshift harpoon. Yeah. If we just throw it into the deep water... Maybe? Hopefully we can catch something? Um, I know, uh, southwestern Ohio is famous for its, for its inland whales, non-oceanic whales, but, uh... 
So in place of a state-of-the-art harpoon, we decided to use a stick. All right, here we go. Okay, he's about to throw the harpoon. Oh, shoot. You know what? We forgot to put, like, a string on it. Well, like a rope. So you could retrieve it back. Dang it! I'd like to point out that our failure to catch a whale was not a result of my of my throw. Yeah, the but- throw was spot on, I will say that. But uh, I think there were two major problems. One is that we forgot to include some sort of retrieval system for the harpoon. And two was that we were whaling in a creek of about two feet of water, two feet depth of water. Yes, and that was probably one of the bigger obstacles we faced that day. Right. So after a day of failed fishing and whaling, we began our long trek back to dry land when we happened upon some new friends. Now. Three, uh, three new new people joined us down at the creek, and um, they, strangers, strangers, yes, strangers, and they seemed like they might know a little bit more about hand fishing than we do. So when we happened upon these three twelve-year-old boys, that seems fairly accurate. Some of whom were attempting to swim in the creek, possibly a health concern. We recruited them to help us out on our mission to become Ohio outlaws. Now, do you see any fish over there? No. Uh, if you find one, just catch it with your bare hands and let us know. We'll be over here. Yeah. And just as we were about to leave, and it seemed like all hope was lost in the shallow part of the water near the bank of the creek, we saw a crawdad. Or a crawfish. Or a crayfish, depending on your dialect. I crouched down, ready to strike. And then as I did, I chickened out and blew it. There's a crawdad. How did I miss that thing? It was right there! Now that's frustrating. You know what? You know why that happened? I was what? scared. That's why that happened. He didn't commit. But, no dice. And so we made the long walk of shame up the bank and back to the car and the long trip home without really breaking the law in Ohio. And that wasn't good enough for us, was it? It really wasn't, no. We could not sleep. We could not rest until we broke a law. And so we came up with a plan and headed back to good old Indiana. So there were a plethora of weird and obscure and outdated laws in Indiana that we could choose from. But there was one that seemed particularly unusual to us, and that's the one that we chose. That's right. And the timing couldn't, couldn't have been any better for us to attempt this because apparently it is still illegal in the state of Indiana to take a bath in the month of October. Uh, and from the, not only the month of October, but from October through March. So I volunteered as tribute. I wanted to be the Jesse James of the Wild Wild Porcelain West. 
so I hopped into that bathtub, risking my livelihood as a civilized, lawful human being. To preserve my dignity, and perhaps Hayden's, I asked him to step outside while I performed this shameful act on my own. All right, so you step out, I guess. All right. And well, then, I'm going to need a clean towel. Oh, clean towel? Yep. Okay. Here you go. Thank you. And then you step out. All right. I'll take a bath. Uh, and I'll let you know how it's going. All right. All right. Wish me luck. Good luck. Now, to make sure Eli didn't chicken out and skip out on the bath, I made sure to stand right outside the door. How's it going in there? Feels kind of weird. I haven't. I don't think I've taken a traditional bath in years. Hey, hey, watch, watch the splashing in there. Well, I need more bubbles. Oh my God. I'm starting to think this was a bad idea. How do you know when you're clean? You know, come to think of it, I'm starting to think that this law isn't that crazy after all. Maybe it should just stay the way it is. Yeah, I personally am not a fan of baths. I think that, like you mentioned, it really is like sitting in your own filth. Uh, and so the fact that this is outlawed seems appropriate to me. All right, I'm going to step out. All right. Do I look clean? You look disgusting. All right, if you want to just step this way, the police are already waiting for you. Oh, darn. I gotta tell you, I don't know if it was worth it. It sounded fun, but at what price? That's the question. That's the question when it comes to breaking the law. (laughs) Is it worth it? And so, after two failed attempts in the state of Ohio, we return to Indiana the crossroads of America on a mission to become outlaws. And I and you, Hayden Sims, as my accomplice, accomplished our mission. How do you feel? I feel right. It feels dangerous, but the adrenaline in my body has built up. I feel like a bad boy for once. Right. I feel like this is the most excitement I've felt in a long time. But... At the end of the day, we are responsible citizens of this great democracy. And so, by the time that this segment airs, Hayden and I will have turned ourselves in to the local precinct. And we'll be presumably locked up in a cell, maybe solitary confinement, for our wrongful deeds. We did not do this for the attention. No. We did not do this because we wanted to. We did this because it was for the sake of American Student Radio, and it was for the people. The music from this segment is provided by Kevin McLeod. For American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Eli Cantrell. And I'm Hayden Sims. That's our show. Very rad of you to listen. Very kind. Much thanks. Next week's show is about the seven deadly sins. Yep, Carter Barrett is hosting and has some good stuff up her sleeve. Same time, same place, WIUX 99.1 at noon. Catch you then.
Thanks for listening to American Student Radio. We're produced by students from Indiana University in Bloomington. Follow us on Twitter at ASR Voice and like us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash American Student Radio. Our theme music is provided by Lunamatic. Check out Lunamatic's music at www.soundcloud.com slash Lunamatic. That's L-U-N-A-M-A-T-I-C. We'll have new episodes every Sunday on WIUX and streaming on our website at www.americanstudentradio.org. 